I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, the FBI created a task force to re-examine civil rights era hate crimes. What does justice look like after all these years? We'll review the podcast Unresolved. Then Netflix is out with a three-part documentary on Ireland's most infamous unsolved murder case. We'll discuss Sophie, a murder in West Cork. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, which is about law and order and SVU, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is author, private investigator, certified pet detective, former journalist, and resident cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good evening, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, author of the novels known as the City Trilogy and host of the Strange Arrivals podcast from iHeart and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. So I hear there's some uh, tales about midlife crises going on in our lives. Laura, I hear having like a serious midlife crisis. What's going on? Well, I've decided that I'm tired of being practical and I want to make a spontaneous decision for once in my life. So I've been test driving convertibles. Oh, and, I thought you were going to say you're doing different kinds of scones. Oh. Uh, I was branching out. I was going to okay. a blueberry scone instead of a white chocolate <laughs> raspberry. But no, I've been test driving cars. Oh. So recently I did a Mazda Miata test drive. And I was like, I wonder who had, I was like, I think Kevin must have had one of these. Well, For yeah. some reason it was in my mind that Kevin had a Mazda Miata. He had an old school one. Before I had kids. I had and, a 1994 And way before, te- yeah. way before this, me. Way before me. And was it fun? It was a lot of fun. Was it zippy? Oh, yeah, it was. But I, I got to tell you that because uh, my wife couldn't drive a stick, I had ex-wife. to get it. My ex-wife. I had to get it in automatic. What are you talking oh. about? Yeah. I taught you how to drive a stick like I, many years after that. Well, I could have learned. But. No, yeah. yeah. Oh. So, oh. Laura, I'm going to tell you something. I am the queen of buying cars without discussing it with anyone, as okay. Kevin can. Uh, yeah, you just come home with the car. But it sounds like you, you test drove some convertibles, but that isn't what you ended up doing. No, I, I well, I haven't purchased, but I'm, I'm on the brink. By the time this podcast drops, mm-hmm. I am going to be the proud owner of a little scooter. 
Nice. Mm. And it's very zippy. And I was going to go drive to Toby's house, but apparently I can't drive on Route 4 <laughs> because scooters aren't allowed there. So Ken suggested I drive through the woods to Toby's house wait, wait, wait. on my little scooter to go visit him. Is this the kind of <laughs> uh, vehicle that you're going to have to register with the state and get a plate? Oh, yeah. Like no, you have moped? to get a plate. Yeah, okay. But I don't need a motorcycle license. Yeah. It's, no. like, it's like under 100 cc's or whatever. 150. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. CC something so like uh, here's the whole thing. What Kevin doesn't know, well, he actually does know this because I've been talking about it for years, is that at some point I will just come home with either a Jeep or a convertible or something. I used to have a Jeep. I had the first four-door Jeep ever registered in the state of New Hampshire Wrangler. Oh. I am obsessed with open-air driving, and I do feel like at some point in, in your life you have to embrace it again. That mm-hmm. being said... It is a bold step to just get a car without talking to anybody in your family. I have, by the way, done it several times. You always do that. (laughs) So I almost did that this week. And then I was like, oh, shit, what did I do? I actually put a deposit down. I just like whipped out my credit card. I'm like, I want this car now. And then I was like, what am I doing? Oh, my God. Who is talking? You were going to put a car on your credit card? No, the deposit. No, yeah, a oh. deposit. Like 100 bucks or whatever. Yeah, because yeah, the car um, I market I want to pay right now, 17% on this car. <laughs> no, the car market right now is so crazy. Yeah. The used car. It's like a bloodbath out there, people. Yeah, it's at the housing market. Yeah. So by the way, now that I've said on the podcast that I'm going to come home with an open top car someday. Do it. Everyone knows it's going to happen. Kevin can't say he wasn't informed, right? It's bullshit, Rebecca. (laughs) All right. Should we go ahead and start our actual podcast right now? If it takes your mind off of buying a car, you bet. Let's get it done. Leading off. I woke up and saw these two white men standing at the foot of my bed. One had a gun, fast flashlight, or immediately back down and go back to sleep. And he made Emmett get up and dress and march him out to the truck. Even when the nation's attention was turned to the problem with racial violence in the South, deaths of black men at the hands of both police and citizens were far too common. And too often, the perpetrators went undiscovered or unpunished. Two weeks after Emmett was buried, an all-white all-male jury acquitted its killers after deliberating for just 67 minutes. It took an act of Congress in 2007 to compel the FBI to reinvestigate more than 100 civil rights-era murders, but its own spotty history with racial killings and potentially low success rate for these kinds of cold cases made some wonder what justice might possibly look like. Some still wondered, with so many cases closed so soon, How thorough was each investigation? Were there clues missed? Witnesses overlooked? Families or suspects not contacted? From Frontline PBS comes Unresolved, a look at the government's attempts to close open cases of racially motivated killings from five decades ago. Host James Edwards, who also had a relative lynched during this era, talks to investigators, families, and experts about the impact of the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the first three episodes of Unresolved. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Now, Kevin, um, I just want to say... This podcast is a compelling material, right? very like rage-worthy uh, journalism, really important topic. Mm-hmm. The style, however, is extremely like P. 
PBS documentary. Like this isn't I'm not a well, monster. <laughs> like this isn't like I there was a PBS documentary and also a podcast. It feels very PBS documentary, right? Yeah, I mean it's a frontline PBS podcast, so it's going to have PBS sensibilities, right? Which means that it's going to be slow and plotting but thorough. But I got to tell you, look, if I'm a reviewer of restaurants and I go to an Italian restaurant, I can't pan it because it's not a Japanese restaurant, mm. okay? So the style is this because it's deliberate. This is how they want to present them. And just like PBS says, hey, we're going to do a reality show, and it ends up being something quasi-educational. Oh, I'm sorry. Frontier House was freaking awesome. Okay, okay. It was awesome. Okay. So style-wise, stylistically, it's going to be not as exciting as other podcasts that our listeners have, you know, taken up. But, you know, there is a, a lot here. The journalism is good. I think it does take a little while to get into, but, you know, even the BBC doesn't make the BBC sounding podcast. They make something that sounds a little more mainstream. So it's not I'm Not a Monster, which was also Frontline PBS, but I'm just I'm just not going to knock it because it's slow. But that being said, we are a podcast that reviews no. other podcasts. Right. And Toby and Laura, you both sent notes along the same lines. Toby, this podcast, I mean, a jazz soundtrack, it was like very low key in terms of its presentation. I thought the material was incendiary, but did the podcast convey how incendiary the material was? What is your experience with this podcast, Toby? Well, it feels like a podcast made by a TV station. You know, I mean, I I feel like this style of narration is fine when you've got visuals to go along with it that can keep your attention but it's so low key. It is just really, really low key. And even though this is a topic that I find extremely interesting, and I actually find this podcast interesting, but it was hard to stay focused. And I was listening to some of it in the car, and I just would find that my mind would wander. And then I'd come back and be like, oh, what, wait, what's going on? And then mm. I'd like back up. And look, you can't take like a Ken Burns show. And just make it an audio thing and have it be interesting, right. you know? I mean, that's, that's it just doesn't do work that way. You can't do a Ken Burns show and have the Ken Burns show be interesting right. sometimes. Let's be real. Yeah. And you also can say you don't like the PBS sensibility. That's yeah. fine, too. No, I like right? it on TV. But it's slow on purpose. You can't just say, oh, it's slow. You but know I what I'm like saying? I like it on TV. Yeah, sure. But I, I think that's a problem is that it's like you can't... I think you got to think it through a little bit more. Like, for, I love Frontline. I think it's, like, one of the best shows on television. But this... Again, if there had been pictures and stuff to go along with it that you could focus on, maybe, but just the just the narration was tough. Yeah. So, and I, I totally agree. Toby, I had the exact same reaction of listening to it. And I was like, I'm going to listen now. I'm going to pay attention. And then I'd be like, what just happened? Because it was just, it was so soothing. The thing, so then I actually went on their website and I looked it up. So this was like one piece in a much bigger bigger project um, that Frontline did. I had, honestly, this is horrible. I couldn't tell you, like, listening to an episode of the podcast more than, like, a few things that happened because I was like, what happened? Because it Mm. was just so, like, level. Laura, can I ask a question, a real question? Because sometimes Mm -hmm. James Edwards would say, now I feel like I understood what happened to my uncle. And I'm like, did I don't understand what happened to your uncle. Do you find yourself thinking, like, you're telling me I know things that I don't know? Yeah, but there was also no variation in the tone of his voice. So I didn't know when I should be paying attention to something and when I shouldn't be paying attention to something because everything sounded exactly the same. But this is the thing. So I went on the website and the website is 
freaking amazing. And it's this huge interactive thing. I was actually going to send it to like my son's history and English teachers because it's like super interactive. You click on each chapter, just like the same chapters in the podcast. And you can like scroll along and follow along. And there's like, and you click on this and there's narration. So I think they basically had, you know, like three or four different projects from the same source material, if that makes sense. Do you feel like the podcast, I mean, the thing about I'm Not a Monster that makes it so brilliant is that they treated the podcast, they made it for the medium. I felt very strongly, like I love the people who worked on I'm Not a Monster and some of the same people worked on this. I felt very strongly like the TV product drove the audio product instead of saying this is a separate product. It felt like. Yeah. But by the way, I just want to make a plug. Um, the Frontline podcast, they've now spun off this new original audio podcast. They used to just make a podcast that was just the audio yeah. from Frontline shows. It actually was pretty good. It was but fucking mind, awesome. Yeah. I just wish they would do that because the audio. They still was, have that. I know they do, but that should, I just think that they should, that, that is good. And like all they do is they add a, a person describing oh. visuals. Yeah, I'm just but, saying like you can get the TV experience with that without making another tv show for podcasting the reason why i'm not a monster is singular is because they knew it what it was for the medium but i gotta tell you the reason that that's different is because in i'm not a monster we followed josh's journey yes right there's no journey here right it's a lot of it's it's a lot of interviews with people who were there who had the journey so it's a lot of analysis which works really great as a talking head kind of tv thing it doesn't translate the same way in a podcast. I have to ask you, Kevin, because this is what I kept thinking. And it's still, by the way, we're still talking about the form, not the story. We'll talk about the story yeah, in a yeah, second. Yeah. I found myself thinking we have like phone calls and tape with people, which is fine. But we never get sort of a central story, a central character, a central... Um, like a like what well, you said, a journey. Like we're basically getting a history lesson through the frame of a couple of stories, and we meet a lot of compelling people, but we never feel like we are with those people. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, mean that's that, one way of looking at that's, it. Yeah. That's just sort of how I felt. I mean, I think J- James Edwards is earnest. All of the sources are earnest. It's all really like good stuff. But there is something about audio, and and Toby, I'm, I'm thinking about you even like with Strange Arrivals, there's something about audio where there has to be a thing that transcends you also driving and you also walking and you also doing laundry because no one just sits on their couch and listens to audio while they're doing nothing else like the way we do with TV. That's that's what I kept thinking about. Yeah, and I think I Laura brought it up which I think I hadn't really thought about, but I think she's right, is that there's not a whole lot of modulation, you mm. know, it's all sort of the same kind of even keeled thing. So if there was, I mean, you talk about when you're plotting a novel or whatever, it's like increasing tension and then it decreases or whatever, just you got to give some variation. And I, I didn't feel like that was there. And I feel bad spending all this time talking about this aspect of it. It's important because it really affects the way you experience it. Cause I think a lot of the stuff that they talk about and some of the ideas that they bring up are super, super interesting and if it was even like 20% more dynamic, I think it could have just been so much better. And I found myself when I was, you know, writing down notes for this, I was like, oh my God, like this thing was interesting and this thing was interesting and this thing was interesting. But I did have to like go back and kind of scour like what what was what I've been listening to to get to that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the things that are interesting. I mean, there are 
like truly fascinating parts of American history and the history of the civil rights movement there. We go to the Emmett Till case. We hear tape from Emmett Till's mother talking about why she did the whole open casket uh, funeral for him, which was obviously like a really critical moment. Well, I knew that I could not tell people what I had seen. Number one, they wouldn't believe me. But if I had two or three hundred witnesses, then all of us could testify to what they had done to Emmett. But the central focus of this podcast is the Till Act, which was essentially an underfunded promise by Congress to create a unit that would investigate these cases and bring them to justice. Now, Laura, as a central focus, like... It's infuriating that this whole thing was like, I mean, there were earnest politicians pushing it. But then after it was passed, basically became like political theater that wasn't seen through. I mean, to me, that was really the heart of what the story was about. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're hearing tape of John Lewis, who's bringing this forward. And, you know, obviously the history and the fact that, you know, you've got 100 cases that are reopened. And that seems huge because, you know, it's like families that have been waiting for somebody to at least listen to them and feel like somebody's responding to what happened to their loved one. But it was hard because I felt like it's a little bit of like an empty promise because you can't have this go through and then not be actually willing to allocate the resources to bring it forward. So it was kind of like, yeah, the intention of the people who put it forward was sincere and good and right. But then, you know, the people on the other side tasked with implementing it, it sounds like pretty clearly weren't necessarily as on board with this. And so it's kind of like, a yeah, sounded good, but we're not really going to push it too hard type thing, which was kind of rage inducing, to put it mildly. So we do actually get inside uh, the FBI cold case unit that was basically charged with following up on this stuff. We hear a lot of it's really the only like in-person tape I think we hear with Cynthia Dietl, who was in charge of that unit, who sort of became a a controversial figure. And um, I mean, I really do think in my opinion, the podcast maybe should have been framed around her because if it's really about this, she's kind of exemplifying the ways this went wrong with the underfunding, with whether or not the FBI did the investigations accordingly. Toby, I'm curious about uh, you and your take on her. She seems contrite on the podcast, but she's also like a figure that clearly there's some controversy around. We hear, you know, James Edwards says some reporters contacted him saying like, She's not a good source. We hear that she went to events. She tells us she went to events and people hated her. Yet we also hear her sort of saying like, yeah, I own it. It's my fault. They've said that they weren't confident that she was always acting in the best interest of the families or the cases. Well, I will say that uh, they were right to criticize me in a lot of cases they were able to get more information than we were. What did you think of that? Because I thought that was super interesting. So the, the historical backdrop to that is, you know, the FBI's, the, the way they've treated, you know, African-Americans and the civil rights movement and, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. in particular. Uh, so I, I think there's a natural suspicion. Uh, it is a little strange that to head this, they picked a white woman um, to head it. Like, I don't know why you wouldn't have an African-American agent doing that if you're trying to, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just you just pick whoever's. I think she was in a cold case unit before this. 
That was her yeah, experience. But it, just, was, it just seems weird if you're if you're trying to turn the page on history on that kind of stuff that that you wouldn't you wouldn't do that regardless. And I, and I think it also like kind of probably increased some suspicion about like oh so why is why is this the person who's doing this? Although I can see the other side of that as being going into the South and maybe they felt like some people would be more interested in talking to her. But didn't you find didn't you find Toby that like there's a I mean they sort of very quickly drop with her this whole J. Edgar Hoover story that to me could have been like a whole episode. I mean, I think there's some assumption of what the audience knows that goes right. with this. And I and this is the the wonderful thing about some podcasts like this that look at historic things I think about like slow burn where they know that the audience is smart but they don't assume the audience actually knows and understands what happened 30 40 50 60 70 years ago and they take the time to explore that like a real story instead of making it a sideline you know what I mean right and they kind of leave it to her to to kind of make that point too right this this untrustworthy person potentially untrustworthy person I mean that's an interesting editorial decision to make because you're allowing her to kind of position herself rather than having the journalist position her. So she's like, I hated J. Edgar Hoover. And, you know, I'm here to like redress those problems and all that stuff. And so, you know, I hadn't really thought about it until we were just talking about it. But it is kind of interesting. It's like, okay, so you potentially divisive, controversial figure, we're going to let you define yourself against this history without any like real pushback. Yeah. So, uh, Kevin, you are much more compelled by episodes two and three of this show, as you wrote in your notes, because it does get into some of that more historical context, the sort of consequences of this. Can you talk about well, what you found stronger about those episodes? Yeah. I mean, I thought episode one was a lot of table setting. And, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not going to say that Emmett Till's story is unimportant to the story. I, I wonder if there was just maybe too much prologue to getting to where sort of things start happening in episodes two and three. We start meeting some of the people who are, you know, relatives or otherwise connected to some of these unsolved cases, including the investigators that you mentioned. You know, the wheels start to turn there. So I think that's kind of where it starts to move. Yeah. You know what other podcast started with the Emma Till case? Uh, in the dark season two. In the dark season two. And, and that was right. a really great example of, I think how you take something historical that's a touchstone that a lot of people know about, but not everyone knows the details about, and use it as a way to scene set. Yeah. That doesn't feel well, like, hey, kids, here's a history lesson about a thing that happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we've had podcasts that have dealt with these kinds of issues, like uh, White Lies and Unfinished Deep South, where they do look at how do you bring justice to a case from the 40s or the 60s or whatever. So it's hard to tell that story, right? Because you're not kicking down a door. You're not following the cops on a hot chase when you're talking about a cold case from the 1960s. So it makes it hard to create that kind of sense of urgency. Also, another thing I, I feel like they need to do is to create sort of the proper tension is that we have to believe that it's so impossible that they can't possibly succeed at anything. And then when they do, it's a surprise and it's satisfying. Or we have to believe this ought to be easy and they should be able to round up a bunch of people. That way we can be disappointed when nothing happens. Right. I think if you sort of have like a half resolution, you have like a half 
satisfaction yeah. or whatever. Yeah. One of the things the podcast does, Laura, is it points out that journalists have made a lot more progress than law enforcement has in terms of advancing these cases. And really what it turns out happens, and I actually found this really interesting, and I, this is yet another thing that I think maybe should have been the central focus rather than this kind of meandering history lesson, is basically that law enforcement, the FBI, tells people, well, the person that we think did it is dead, or the witnesses are dead, and therefore, sorry, we can't do anything. That doesn't happen in other kinds of crimes, mostly crimes that affect predominantly white people. And I'm just curious, like, what do you think? Is justice even possible? Or can a feeling of justice be possible when the people who are responsible for investigating the things are like, well, everyone's dead. So really kind of like, what does it matter whether or not we bring this case forward? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is you're going into these cases that are so old and so cold. And it's not just a few cases. I mean, this is a tremendous number of cases. So going back that far and actually trying to find witnesses, it's really hard. And then the two cases that you're mentioning, you know, the first case was Ducksworth. And he was, you know, the guy that his wife was in the hospital and, you know, he's rushing there and the whole situation with the bus. Well, eventually his son, who was kind of the central character in that, finds out what really happened because he never knew how he actually died. But he finds out that he was shot and what happened. But, you know, then you find out by the time this task force comes out, the officer is dead. So it's like, what's, you know, what's the what point? are you going to do? Right. Well, even if they want to do something, like, what are they going to do at that point? And then the other case, the person actually was only sentenced to like six months in prison when they finally, the one case that they actually prosecuted. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's kind of a tough one because I feel like, you know, how do you even begin to sort through that number of cases and actually find people that are still alive, cognizant, to interview, you know, about those cases. Toby, what do you think of the fact that this uh, James Fowler case is the one that they hold up as their exemplar? Of course, this is the one that sparked a big uprising. And, you know, this is like a huge moment in history. They put this James Fowler case up as our big success. And he got so little time. What do you think of this part of the story? I don't know. I mean, I I, I kind of feel like... Is this really, it would make me think, is this the ideal way of, of, of trying to accomplish this? Is the idea of finding somebody 40 years later who's 80 years old and trying to put them in jail for X amount of time, is that the best method for confronting this part of our history? I don't know. I mean, if this is what John Lewis wants to do, I'm not going to criticize him. But it's, you know, like South Africa had a, had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where the sort of animating thing behind that was we want to get the truth out so we can confront it, right? And we're not, we're not necessarily going to be super punitive, but, it, but it, if you have to come out and you've got to say what happened truthfully, and, th- and that's how you buy your freedom. I don't think we have the political, bipartisan political will to do that no, in this country. totally we don't. Which is freaking insane. But and so maybe the idea is that this is the one way we can do it is through the justice system is to kind of force it in that way. But if that's the case, you know, one of the things that comes out of this, I thought was, 
it seems like lip service was kind of paid to this effort, but you know the the total budget was two million dollars a year to disperse, and even that wasn't necessarily allocated. Yeah, allocated. I mean that that they may have just been on paper. So I mean, what what really was the commitment to this? It seems kind of disappointing in the end. Like the idea seems great, but then how committed to this are people? All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the Unresolved podcast? This is a frontline PBS project. Uh, Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Unresolved? So I am thumbs sideways on the podcast and I am thumbs up on the project. So I would say the podcast was just really flat to me in terms of the way the information was presented. The project was really ambitious and it was information I really wanted to learn about. So go to their super amazing interactive website that they have set up at PBS Frontline specifically for this project. And that actually was really cool. And that actually had all a lot of the information, a lot of the audio clips presented in such a way that you could latch onto it. So thumbs sideways on the podcast, thumbs up on the project. Toby Ball. Yeah, this is a tough one for me. I mean, I, I again, I think the subject's important and it's something I find really interesting. It's just the presentation is just, it's really hard to focus as I think my responses in this conversation have probably proven. <laughs> uh, so I'm sort of in the thumb sideways. I mean, I, I yeah, thumb sideways. I'm conflicted. Kevin Flynn. Uh, I'm a tepid thumbs up. The journalism is good. It's okay. And I, I, this is my advice, and I don't mean this as a put down at all. If you listen to this podcast, listen to it at one and a half speed. A hundred percent. And it kind of like gets the narrative going. Um, I will say, though, you know, all this saxophone music that they have. It reminds me of the Crime Writers on Facebook Watch TV show theme that we had. You know, one of the interesting things, though, is that James Edwards, the the host, does a good job. He has a an interesting connection to the story, and it's just in these first three episodes, it's just been touched on a little bit. I, I hope that they explore that more because that's I find that the most interesting part of the project. So anyway, it's like you know, it's all right. You guys are cowards. I'm just gonna say it. I gotta give down? This, I gotta give it a thumbs down. Okay. Listen. The story is important. The material is interesting. Here's what I hear. I hear a project that did not devote enough resources to making the audio part of the project. And granted, this is a thumbs down on scale. Like, if someone else made this podcast, honestly, I might give it a thumbs up. Given what we else we've heard from Frontline, PBS Frontline, and specifically, I'm Not a Monster, where the decision was made to do the story for audio, to focus on central characters, to take us on a journey. I'm really interested in this story. I think it is so important. The idea that there was this political act created to right this historical wrong, and it was totally fucked up. We don't even hear about that until like the middle. Like that is the central premise of the podcast. Start there, find somebody who was super affected by it and and go with that person through that journey. 
I'm just going to say, though, I don't think it has anything to do with the people who assembled the podcast. I think it has to do with... It sounds to me like the people who did it only listened to PBS podcasts. No, no, no. I feel like the people who did it were just given what they were given in terms of resources to do it. And, like, they were given different resources for, like, for instance, I'm Not a Monster. The commitment to making this a real podcast was not there and... Man, I really, really wanted to love this. I just couldn't. I had to rewind a bunch of times and listen over and over again. And I love the story. The journalism is solid. I cannot give the podcast a thumbs up. I'm very sorry. I just can't do it. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. All right, so Kevin, here we are in the business section of the show. What is coming up in the Crime Writers on After Show this week? Well, this week we're going to talk about the big uh, courtroom news, uh, the sentencing of Allison Mack Mm. in the Nexium case, and the release of Bill Cosby from prison. Two true crime updates. Two true crime updates. Happening in the After Show. So uh, what else is going on on our Patreon, Kevin? Uh, Well, we have uh, Toby Ball is going to have another episode of his Deep Dive Book Club. The live recording was postponed, and it is going to be held again on July 14th. So if you are a Crime Writers on Nation sponsor member, you can watch Toby's live uh, taping of the podcast. You can even participate by typing in the chat or jumping on the the video screen and giving your comments on the book, The Golden Thread. And uh, with the summer coming up, and us having a couple, you know, some fewer episodes of the after show that'll be coming out. We're going to supplement that with a couple of extra things. Like what? Like uh, we're going to bring back the after work drink party with Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie sometimes. Yeah, but it's going to be with Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie sometimes. What the hell? All right, fine. <laughs> can I hijack your event? You absolutely can. We'll I come- love showing up to your after work drinks party. I love it. Yep. So you just got to sign up, and you can be there on Crowdcast. Bring your own drink. We'll bring you on. We'll ask about how your day at Doesn't work went. Doesn't have to be alcoholic. Doesn't have to be, what's the point, though? We don't want to, like, promote alcoholism and alcohol culture on the show. We just want to say, if you enjoy drinking like we do... Toby's laughing his ass off. You can bring in tonic. We, we don't want to promote well, alcoholism. You know what we don't want to do? We don't, nice don't want to, like, I have to tell you... Pass I'm, me your cup. I Pass have, me that cup you're drinking. It's a gin and tonic. But yeah, okay. I have to tell you, I also do I also do realize that, like, drinking culture is toxic, and I don't want to tell people that they're not included if they don't like to drink. You know what I'm saying? I'm drinking a tea right now. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Yeah, we have people tea. who join the parties yeah. from Australia and they're having their morning coffee. Uh, their breakfast. They're eating eggs yeah. at parties, yes. We're not telling them to drink whiskey in the morning. <laughs> also, we want to ask you to sign up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. It comes out every Monday and it has a list of uh, things, summaries of our reviews, Crime Writers on Behind the Scene News. Uh, the, every week we've got some new merch. Uh, I bought a t-shirt last week. You bought a t-shirt last week. Okay, so here's the thing. We make like four cents when someone buys a t-shirt. Like we actually make the t-shirts. But Kevin makes up like a new t-shirt every week. And like every other week, I just buy the t-shirt. And Kevin's like, why are you buying the t-shirt? I'm like, because you made a good t-shirt this week. It's actually like a legit good t-shirt. I have like three t-shirts that you made just for the newsletter. I'm just going to say this week's t-shirt is my favorite. <laughs> oh my gosh. Cannot okay. wait. Will I be buying one? Uh, I hope you do. 100% and a convertible. Oh, by the way, we just tell people, how do you become a patron of the show on Patreon? Oh, you go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Not like we say it at the very beginning of the show or anything. And then you pick your uh, your membership level, put in your credit card, and you know, boom, you got access to all sorts of How exclusive content. How many episodes content. of exclusive content are there? More than 200 podcast episodes kind for you incredible. to listen to. All right, so Kevin, before we get back to the show, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Lori King and Renata Gonzalez. Lori King, really? She's a Patreon patron don't, saint? Don't, don't, don't step on me. Hold I on. I mean, I legit Hold just on. heard from her this week. I, I know, I know, because she's a saint. Yeah. But you're you're in the way of my bless you. Oh. Ready? Bless you. Bless you. All right, let's get back to the podcast, shall we? Moving on. The only reason I'm involved is because I was the last person spoke to her, except whoever saw her after me. In 1996, a French resident staying in Ireland was murdered outside her vacation home in West Cork. The death of Sophie Toscan de Plantier was so sensational, it created a media storm both on the aisle and on the continent. The brutal murder has shocked the public. I suppose the international dimension gives it an added mystique. France has been gripped by this case. Just how a woman could be murdered in probably the safest place in Ireland, beggars believe. Suspicion turned to a man already publicly involved in the investigation. Authorities could not make the case against him stick. And rather than disappearing from the public spotlight, the prime suspect has reveled in the celebrity that the crime has brought him. She said to me on one occasion, she said, do you know what they're saying up here? And I said, no, tell me what they're saying. They're saying the word is... You murdered her. Netflix's three-part series, Sophie, A Murder in West Cork, revisits Ireland's most infamous crime. We hear from Sophie's family in France, from investigators in County Cork, from journalists in England, and from the man at the center of the case who says he has nothing to hide. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Sophie, A Murder in West Cork. So, to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes, to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. All right, guys, there's one thing uh, that we've got going with us because we did West Cork the podcast. Right. But what we've got going for us here is the incredible location porn that is West Cork. Laura Bricker, <laughs> have you already booked your plane tickets to Ireland so that you can visit West Cork? Because the visuals in this are amazing. What do you think? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was, well, my old editor is currently living in Ireland, and I'm like, you know what? This might be the time. But it's just like, you know, it's like this very hard scrabble, like Shetland, um, that some of us have watched on Netflix or BritBox or whatever. And, but it really kind of gives you also, besides just being like, wow, I want to live there and have goats as pets or something. It also really, <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Well, like, she, they're all out there yeah. tending their animals. And I'm like, oh, I, I totally want to do that. And going but to the pub. Yeah. But it's like, you really grasp just the remote nature of the terrain, especially when you see it and then you see the map. And then when you hear about how, you know, few people live there. Um, but the, the location porn was amazing. Toby, like, so in the podcast, we heard about this, but I think the show does it really well. Shows us the remoteness of where Sophie's house was, but also the community, which we hear is both exclusive and inclusive because of the terrain and the geography of it, but also because of just like what the people there are like. I mean, I felt very immersed in this documentary. What did you think? Yeah, well, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting community. They talk about how cosmopolitan it is and how sort of accepting it is. And I think we only see her once, but there's a woman who moved with her lesbian partner and their kid like back in the 80s, maybe, and said that they were welcomed and accepted and that, that, that was they had felt kind of unusual at the time. So it's this mix of this small, somewhat isolated Irish town and then all these people who come like artists and hippies and stuff from from around the world to live there. So it is it is this kind of weird, but to the exclusion of, of Ian Bailey, it seems like a very cool place in that. <laughs> it's cool, except for this one guy. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's, but that's the way it seems, yeah. right? Is that it seems like everybody seems pretty cool with the way things are and that, that it's kind of weird, but everybody's kind of accepting. But then everybody's like, and then, you know, this Ian Bailey comes in and gets drunk and starts spouting poetry. And, you know, <laughs> but he sort of fits, but sort of doesn't. But we'll get to that in a minute. Kevin Flynn, the most Irish of us on this podcast, I want to f- know how you felt about the scene setting here. Oh, yeah. I mean, the visuals are wonderful. They're, and they use them, right? I mean, it, it's unlike, uh, you know, suburban Colorado or a metropolitan Manhattan. And it is the part of Ireland that, as they, you know, in the first five minutes explain, is so remote that, you know, it's just sort of very rugged and how difficult and long it takes to get there and whatnot. The road leading to Sophie's house, it's a side road off a small country road is quite sinuous around bends and then you clear one shoulder of rock and you see the house in the distance so yeah we buy into the scene setting right away and a lot of us are familiar with the case of course uh in the u.s because of the west cork podcast but it had been behind a paywall uh for audible for a long time so there, there are a lot of true crime fans that never got to listen to it it is available now so we say yeah definitely it's a huge case in europe huge a huge case in europe they yeah. already knew about it there weren't a lot of people in the u.s that were following it but there is still a big chunk of true crime fans that have not really dove into this case yet in the u.s and i think that they're going to enjoy this because it's it's only three episodes West Cork as a podcast is very long. This is a great way of sort of getting all the meat of the story. And you get a great cliffhanger at the end of episode one, which is that the prime suspect in the case happens to be this journalist we've been hearing from for the past hour, Ian Bailey. 
Yes. So I will just say, before we talk about Ian, probably the analog in the United States for this case would be the Michael Peterson case, which was the subject of the staircase. Very famous case mm-hmm. with a prominent person at the center of it who may have done it or may have not, who was a writer, that a lot of people talk about because it's been the subject of many media products. The uh, Ian Bailey, Sophie Desconde-Plantier case in Ireland is huge and in Europe is as probably as prominent as that case is here in the United States just for just for comparison's sake but of course the interstate issues with the legal case play a part all sorts of things play a legal part but Kevin just brought up something that I think is really important that I think that this documentary does really well so Toby imagine you knew nothing about this case and you just watched this documentary Ian Bailey who it turns out is the prime suspect, and some of us think probably did a guy in the case, is just a source in the documentary for the first episode. And then they make the turn where it's like, guess who the prime suspect is? Could you put yourself in the headspace as a viewer who didn't know that and realize like how extraordinary that turn was in this story? Um, No, it was hard for me to do that. (laughs) But it is. But the way they set it up is pretty weird. It's like something out of fiction. So uh, there is one part, like right before that, I think, where I can't remember exactly. Something's going on, and they just have him like staring at the camera briefly. (laughs) And I was like, so is this where we're going to find out? But then they just move on to something else. I was like, well, maybe that's foreshadowing. Um, But it is. I mean, all the characters. When they have them sit well, down, well, they, they get a long thing where, shit, yeah. where they'd be like staring and then you'd hear their voices and then they'd kind of pick it up. But anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's you know, if you don't see it, if you don't know it's coming, I'm sure it's startling. You know, there's a lot of strong personalities in this. Oh, yeah. And he's sort of the most sort of pompous of them. But there's a lot of strong personalities So, Laura, one of the things that was very singular about this documentary compared to the podcast, it really separated it, was the participation of Sophie's family, her aunt, her son. And they were, like, in the foreground of this, really setting the background for who she was, about her kind of shitty marriage, about how extraordinary she was, why she bought the place in West Cork and would go there and be separated from her family for Christmas. What did you think about the family's participation in this film? I was kind of impressed with just how many different family members they had. I know, you know, as a journalist and as a writer, when you're trying to get family members of victims to participate in interviews, it's hard. And sometimes you might not get anybody and sometimes you might get a few, but they had, you know, her parents who were particularly heartbreaking uh, you know, recounting going to identify her body and looking at her body, and and that that was just an awful scene. But so they were they were very forthcoming in the interviews as well to tell those type of details that you know it wasn't just like a superficial response. So I think it really added another layer to it, and you really also came away with that sense of how much of a respite West Cork was for Sophie when. You know, her family members were talking about what her life was like with her husband, you know, who was friends with the French president and everything. So completely about as polar opposite as you could get from West Cork. He seemed like a dick, though, right? Yeah, he seemed like an a-hole. I was just like, he just, (laughs) he didn't even go over there when she was killed. So I'm like, uh, hello? (laughs) Kevin, what do you think of the family being in the film? I thought it was great. Uh, We certainly 
I don't want to say that Sophie wasn't present in the podcast, but her spirit is a lot more here in the documentary through photos and home movies, but also with the... Um, you really can't have a, a French-speaking family part of a English-speaking podcast because right. you can't, right? Because you can't do the. I mean, you could, you know, have an actor or whatever like that, but you get to see them in their own voice and their own sadness. And the, the, I thought the brother was incredibly empathetic, uh, and to see the mom and dad as well, you know, it's very sad. And we only we saw her son very briefly, but my favorite is the aunt. She's the the aunt. aunt, I love her. Yes, Elvis. Do French not Elvis. do not say anything negative about that woman. She is the best. She's the best. Moi, je pense quelque part que Bailey tenait l'Irlande par les couilles. So there is also a thread here with the Garda, which we heard about in the podcast. And there we get a few cops in the documentary, including. Some cops who, in my opinion, seem sort of competent and earnest, like from sort of like Dublin and those guys. But then there was a local cop. Uh, I believe his name was Dermot Dwyer, who is uh, oh, the, the chief investigator. Well, we hear about sort of the keystone cops nature of the investigation, how they maybe or maybe not, but actually probably bungled sort of the initial part of this with the, you know, the evidence on scene, with who they talked to. I don't think they went into that as much as they could have. But they also manipulated this key witness. You know, she gave her testimony. She retracted her testimony. Are you talking about Marie Farrell? Yeah. What do you think about her? Okay. Marie's a different story. She's the one who says that she saw a drunken Ian Bailey near the bridge. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> In the jacket. But- and Jackie, but she didn't want to talk about it because she was with a man who wasn't her husband. Allegedly. And under penalty of death, it seemed, at the court, like she actually walked out of the court rather than name the guy, even though she says he's dead. I think at this point, I'm not believing her at all. It's bullshit. The whole thing is I bullshit. think that she She's wasn't with Wilde anyone. She's in this case. She's yeah. in Jay Wilde in this I don't, case. Well, I don't know. Well, 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 I, don't think, I don't think that she's making the whole thing up. You know, she may have seen somebody, but the idea that she was, you know, I think that's the only reason why she doesn't want to admit who it was, because I don't think there was anybody. He arrived in the shop and he said that he knew I had seen him on the bridge and that he wanted me to tell his solicitor that a guard they had made me make up the story about him. All right. I'm not going to make either Laura or Toby answer this, but I have an opinion I want to share. All right. I don't think it's Marie Farrell's fault. I think it's the Keystone cops. I think the cops put her up to. I it. think she is the Jay Wilds of this case. Mm-hmm. I think she had a little something. They coerced her into giving a bigger something. She probably did have some secret she wanted to sort of keep, and they sort of said like, "Hey, you're going to keep your secret, but we're going to put you at the foreground of this thing." She was in a fucked up situation. Well, why did she tell, say it was the cops all the years later when she tried to get out of it? Because she can't like. Did you like the justice well, system there? Does not let her like. It's just weird. Like she's in a fucked up situation. Well, okay. You know who else isn't doing that? Jay Wilds. He's not saying that happened. You know what I mean? I think she was had the screws put to her because of some secret she had. I'm just gonna say it, Marie. I don't think you're great, but I also don't think it's completely your fault. I think those cops were fucking Keystone cops. So you're like drawing some conclusion between. Ian and Adnan? No, no, no. Ooh. I'm talking about witnesses, not oh. people who are arrested. I'm talking about how cops use witnesses to make cases. Got and it. it just seems like these cops were just incredibly inexperienced. Like, if you look at the crime scene, like, 
They didn't do anything they should have done. I don't know. But there's another. Well, they hadn't had murders there. Right. Right. Well, it's West Cork. It's beautiful. Why would anyone murder anybody? And go to the pub? We didn't murder somebody for. Uh, but, Toby, there is one sort of weird uh, turn of justice, too, which is that Ian Bailey, who we may all agree or disagree, likely murdered Sophie. We'll talk about that at the end and our opinions about it. But he was actually like tried in absentia in a whole different country, which for me as a, a criminal justice advocate person seems a little weird. What do you feel about that, Toby? Yeah, it seems more than a little weird. <laughs> um, yeah, that whole thing was very odd. Uh, I thought his lawyer actually had the right attitude, which was like, yeah, they're going to find him guilty and we're not going to participate because this is ridiculous. So I could see, you know, it was obviously cathartic and I could see the family being super frustrated with the Irish justice system and what seems to be pretty good evidence not being enough to bring a prosecution. That being said, like, I wouldn't want to be in a situation where, like, I might be, (laughs) you know, sent over to France based on some kind of conviction they got in a trial like that i mean it just it seemed kind of insane but that has nothing to do with whether or not he's guilty it has to do with the process i find myself thinking the same thing like yeah i'm just gonna say it i think ian bailey did it i really do uh laura bricker one of the reasons i think ian bailey did it is because of the wounds on his hands and arms and his fucking stupid explanation for those wounds if i had have had anything to do with it which i didn't You'd think, wouldn't you, that I would have, and the scratches had come from Briars, which they didn't. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, I'd have had my, I wouldn't have been working bare armed. That's my opinion, and I'm comfortable giving it because he has been put in the frame and has been convicted by one court. But what do you just think of him and his sort of like endless parade of explanations? about things like wounds on his arms and hands, about things like, yes, I confessed in that pub, but I've also held at the moon randomly. Like, what do you just think of that whole Ian Bailey thing? Oh, my God. If he lived in my neighborhood, I would be spying on him all the time. Because um, he sounds, <laughs> well, like, uh, he's just out there. So, I mean, it's like, I think if I didn't think that he was, like, lying, manipulative, eccentric, possibly psychopathic before this, you know, you can't watch him and listen to him and not come away from this thinking like, what is going on with this guy? Like, he, you know, and specifically, I loved being able to see what you were talking about, Rebecca, the actual like his reenactments out in the chicken pen where he's talking about how he he was holding this legs. And I'm just like, and then it went here and there. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Really? But, you know, cutting down the Christmas tree the Christmas and then we tree. actually see the Christmas tree. And it's like, that doesn't look like a weapon to me. It doesn't look like that no. Christmas tree could have cut you. It was crazy. But I also, despite all that, you'd hear like the people at the pub were like, oh, yeah, he did write this poetry. And it was fucking horrible. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, we, we did hear him out there. Like, we see him out. He had like a stick above his head making noise when it was a full moon. And I'm like, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, but I'm not. I'm not talking about him being eccentric and doing no, no, poetry. No, no, no. But I'm I talking just, about he told people that he yes. murdered her. He yeah. told people. Yeah, and then I mean, you know, we hear a lot again about Jules, his uh, girlfriend, that he was, you know, beating the crap out of over and over again. And I think, you know, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. But listening to all of this, I, you know, it seems pretty obvious 
that he's guilty. But what's crazy is that he's guilty. Everybody, for the most part, aside from those two women who defended him, think he's guilty. And he's been convicted in France, but he's still able to just hang out and live in West Cork because, like, we accept these these people here. It's it's okay. You know, it's it's like weird. It's like he's almost in like purgatory now. But he hasn't been convicted there, let's be fair. But Kevin. Yeah. Long history of domestic violence, which, by the way, he couches in that same fucked up way everyone couches domestic violence, which was, she hit me first, which is a fucking bullshit thing for a domestic abuser to say. Uh, confessed to the murder several times to lots of people and has unexplained or poorly explained wounds. And I don't think the documentary gets so much into his relationship with Sophie as the podcast did. But I don't know. What do you think of just sort of that whole thing? Well, okay. Ian Bailey, again, I'm not a psychiatrist, but Ian Bailey presents like a guy with the schizotypal personality disorder like Bo Bergdahl had. Like that in and of itself is not make him a dangerous person, right? But it might explain like his lack of humility over the accusations and going on with his life in the same community and also thinking that people like his stupid fucking poetry at that pub, <laughs> right? Fuck your poetry, Ian. We don't want to hear you talking about the dolphins and all this other stupid shit, right? It drives people crazy. I'm sitting on the, on the rock on Dunmanus Bay calling for the dolphins to come and play a big pod, please, swimming in perfect harmony because I have many questions to ask of the dolphins. You wrote, um, well, it sounds very harsh to say doggerel. But it certainly, they were not well-developed poems. So it kind of explains his personality, and it certainly doesn't make him look any less guilty, whether he did or not. Because normally, I'm not saying like, you know, you get out of town after you got away with it, but it certainly, he likes the attention. He, you know, it's like, oh, it's amazing he was in this uh, documentary. No, he was in the podcast. Yeah. We listened to four episodes of the podcast before we found out he was the prime suspect. Right. He just kind of eats this stuff up and in a very peculiar way. So he's a peculiar guy. You can't get in between him and a microphone. You just no, can't. you can't. That's so, fair. Toby, I know that you are of the four of us. Usually the most reticent person to sort of like give an analysis of a character or someone's culpability in that way. I am extremely curious about your general impressions of Ian Bailey and his potential culpability here. I would just like to give you the floor right now. Toby Ball, what do you think? Ian Bailey, go. Well, I think there's an easy... Like, I can understand why he's an attractive suspect, because I think that his personality, uh, the things that he exhibits, it's easy for me to think that in his mind, in that town, which is full of, like, hippies and, uh, you know, unsophisticated people or whatever, that he is this artistic, sophisticated, well-educated guy and and that this is going to be attractive to a sophisticated woman like uh Sophie Tuscan Duplantier. So I I think it's easy to see this situation where he's going like he said he wanted to talk to her about a poetry project. So he's going to go and sort of present himself as I'm this poet, you're a poet or whatever. And sort of this thing that he has in his mind that he is, like that's actually the circles that she runs around in in Paris, right? I mean, she's running around with the intelligentsia and like the like for real, the really like high end 
culture people. She's at Cannes, the film festival. Yeah, so she, so he's going to show up to her place like with these ridiculous poems, and you know, like what what is her response going to be to that, right? And how is he going to take anything other than adulation or affirmation or whatever? So that's why I think, like, even beyond the fact that he's just kind of like nobody really likes him, and the only people who who say, well, you know, does just because he's a jerk doesn't mean he did it. Is like I think they're trying to like sort of virtue signal that they're that open minded. Um, I, I just think the scenario is so easy to envision. I think there's also clues. I mean, the whole th- I mean, the scratches on his arms. You know, the fact that he wasn't where he said he was. You know, in bed with his partner. You know, there's certainly a lot of stuff that points towards him in a, in a way that makes sense. That being said, again, you know, it's like you're drawing conclusions from a documentary. There's not a whole lot that's on his side on this, right? I mean, other than him talking, which again, I mean, I, I agree with Kevin. I, I think there's like some mental illness stuff that's going on. And to a certain extent, I mean, he's not a character that you feel much sympathy for, but I think you could probably make the the case that there's some ethics reasons not to let the guy spout off and go on and on in his own defense when clearly he's just digging his own grave. But anyway, this story, like, I think it's just impossible. Like, you'd have to try really, really hard to make something that sucked about this story because you've got such strong, (laughs) strong, interesting personalities. The, The case is interesting. It reminds me, like, I don't know if you guys have read Minette Walters, but she's like sort of a crime suspense uh, writer from England. And her first few novels are just awesome. Well, I'm going to download very, them now. They're very similar to this, like The Ice House or The Breaker. They're they're same vibe. Laura, I just want to underline something that I don't think uh, we talked about enough in our conversation, but I think is very important. Ian Bailey is violent. It's not just that he's crazy. It's not just that he's weird. It's not just that he had scratches on his arm. We see in this documentary photographic evidence of his penchant for violence against women. His partner, Jules, filed charges against him. He beat the shit out of her. And then he did the same thing that almost every domestic abuser does, which is to say... We had a fight, and it went both ways, and she hit me too. And yet, she is the one that we see photos of with the shit beaten out of her. And if you think about the way that Sophie died, she wasn't shot, she wasn't stabbed, she had the shit beaten out of her. Like, to me, um, you know, like calling him weird and not just completely fucking underscoring his history of domestic violence is... To me, that is the like the biggest evidentiary clue. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you know there was one particularly poignant scene where the uh, I believe it was the police or the investigator was talking about going in when Jules had been in a particularly violent attack, and her eye was all messed up, and her hair was like ripped out of her head, and her child was there. And listening to that, you just you get a sense like this was like somebody that was really out of control when they were violent, not to diminish any other. I mean, I'm just saying I've investigated when I was an investigator, lots of domestic violence cases, and there was some that were run of the mill. And then 
there was where they like ripped the phone out of the wall so they couldn't call the police. This was like a different level that would yeah. bump, you know, just a different level of violence. And that cop says when there's some debate about what she's going to press charges, and he's like, she has to because, you know, if not, he's going to do it again yeah. and, and somebody could die. Yeah. Kevin, there's one other detail in the documentary, which I found super interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exchange student who was staying with them, who saw Ian's coat in the bucket oh. in the shower. That was weird, yeah. Fucking weird, right? It's not how you clean it. Yeah. Yeah. It's anyhow. really not. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Sophie, A Murder in West Cork? It is a three-part documentary on Netflix. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Sophie, A Murder in West Cork? Yeah, this is a thumbs up. You know, this is a case that, you know, I I went into knowing about the case, but still seeing it in this different format with this on location, beautiful cinematography of Ireland, of this very sort of hard scrabble Irish community in West Cork, and then getting to see and hear from all of the people that are involved in this case. You know, it was three episodes. It could have been a little longer, but it was just the right length. And yeah, there's some things I didn't like about it. But overall, I thought it was a good overview of the case. And I liked that we heard so much from the suspect himself, because that really put this whole story a little more into context. Toby Ball, what do you think? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, I love the podcast, West Cork. You know, I don't think content-wise this is quite as good as that, but I think the visuals are so sort of important and evocative in this, in telling the story, that I think that kind of makes up for it. So I think they're kind of on equal footing uh, in my mind, which is a big thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. I'm also a thumbs up. Uh, I think that folks should, if you haven't listened to the West Cork podcast, this is a great way to get into the story, watch this documentary, get a feel for the whole thing. And then if you want more, then, you know, the deeper dive would be that podcast. And remember, it's not going to be available outside the paywall forever. So jump on that. But anyway, to talk about the Netflix project, I think it's great. It touches all the bases. And like you said, you talk to everybody that you'd really want to talk to in this case. So, yeah, I usually, Kevin, when I have interviewed a director of a thing on the Netflix podcast, you can't make this up. I give like a... A caveat, like FYI, I watched this and I interviewed the director for You Can't Make This Up on Netflix. And I feel like that's an important thing to say. Mm -hmm. People will think that I'm like being transparent. So I'm saying it now. That being said, I loved this documentary, uh, whether or not I had to watch it for my other Netflix gig. I was able to watch it. Enough time had passed from the West Cork podcast where I wasn't actually comparing it to that. The sort of bilingual nature of it, the fact that a lot of it was in French, was super interesting. The visuals were incredible. The participation of her family was incredible. But the one thing that was interesting to me is that um, I really got an understanding of why this case, for lack of a better word, sticks. We have the very likely perpetrator walking around, still happily giving interviews, putting himself in front of the camera, wanting to defend himself. That aspect of this case to me is fascinating. It actually reminds me a lot of the O.J. Simpson case. We have here a person who, in my opinion, and probably factually murdered his ex-wife and yet like is doing cameos. And I don't know, there's just something really incredible about it that is 
so speaks to the state of what it is to like be a woman in the world. And I don't want to get like um, too off a topic. We're going to talk about this in the after show about just what it is to be a woman and what like men get away with what they're able to do. But this case is an exemplary example of a person who abuses women, very likely murdered women, and can still happily give an interview on camera for Netflix. And I think that is fascinating and is handled very well in this documentary. So big thumbs up for me for Sophie, a murder in West Cork. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime... Crime of the week. Of the week. He's Nacho, regular taco truck driver. Nacho, regular truck driver. I see what you did there with the script. A Washington State woman who'd been going to the same food truck for 12 years said she got a call from the owner when she stopped showing up for lunch. Taco Tom left a message of concern, hoping she was okay. The woman, whose TikTok name is Kerr, said she'd been to the same taco truck multiple times a week since high school. He had her phone number because she'd often call to find out where he was parked on any given day. Kerr says an illness kept her away for a few months, and that is when Taco Tom left a voicemail to see if she was all right. Oh. The incident actually happened in 2018, but Kerr just recently shared it on social media. Taco Tom's act of kindness has gone viral, with thousands of commenters saying it warmed their hearts even more than the Cholula sauce on his $2 taco lengue tripa. Taco. Taco lengue tripa. That's cow tongue and intestines. Keep oh, going. really? Yeah. It's many, only two bucks, too. Many have been sending donations to Taco Tom to help offset the financial loss of the pandemic. So, panel, being a repeat customer has its advantages. Who would be calling you if you suddenly stopped showing up? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, there's so many answers to this. The cats, um, <laughs> the scones people at the bakery. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on. Toby Ball, who would be calling you if you failed to show up for your regular food order? The the people where I get my salads for lunch did not call me up, and I haven't been there for 18 months. Yeah. So wow. That didn't happen. Fuck them, right? So I, I'm they relying on the uh, the good citizens of Crime Writers on Nation to notice if I'm not on our show a couple times. Kevin Flynn, who would be calling you if you did not show up? Nobody. 
Nobody's called. I just like Toby. Nobody cared. I was gone for months. Oh, God. I hope my wife would call. So yeah. I have an answer for this. Yeah. The only because I have not stopped showing up at these places. Uh-huh. Somebody would call from the Taco Bell drive-thru, way out there on Loudon Road, uh-huh. where every single fucking time I go to Target, I have to stop and get my bean burrito. And it's across from Walmart. 380 calories of high-fiber goodness. Somebody would call from Colonial Village in Kentuckuk, New Hampshire, where I stopped to get my Outshine popsicles literally every other day. Uh, I would think that these people would call because I am loyal. I get Triscuits, popsicles, and that Taco Bell bean burrito. I am very loyal. Pharmacy calls, whether they I want them to. Oh or not. my God! CVS oh, calls, God. even if I haven't picked up my pills like an hour after my doctor ordered them. So good for CVS. Get your pills, girl. All right, we should probably end it there. Before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do not have a cat. We have a chicken this week. Whoa, that's a first. That's a first. Mm. Yeah, local polos. Oh, is it one of Ian Bailey's that scratched his face? (laughs) (laughs) It's one that escaped. Uh, Escaped Taco Tom. Yeah, no, it wasn't going to get the axe. This comes to, although sadly it is dead. Uh, This. this (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Spoiler Spoiler alert. alert. (laughs) Go to the time code in our show notes. For our dead or not dead review of our cat of the week. <laughs> okay. So Sarah Campbell, um, gray chicken. Gray chicken was always her son's favorite. Was. <laughs> That's so See, Toby's crying. It's so sad. <laughs> was. Was. That's my, I mean, that one's my favorite, Ma. <laughs> we wouldn't be laughing if it were a dog. That's or a true. Cat. Let's be it? real. There's a hierarchy of animal animals. Oh, it's horrible. And There's so much. <laughs> Laura, go ahead. There's a picture. Great chicken uh, was. Hold what? on, I'm crying. Hold on. Okay. I'm gonna close myself. Grief or humor? Okay. Um, we adopted her from my father, who became too unwell to care for his little flock, and she fit very well into our Dublin suburban garden until Mr. Fox visited one. So this is like a Beatrix Potter story. Mr. One Fox. Sunny Around 11.30, we had our guard down, and they miss her every day. Oh, my gosh, this poor chicken. Anyway, she has sparked their love for chicken keeping. Stop it, Toby. At approximately 23, 11 hours. I'm not doing anything. People are going to think we don't give a shit about chickens. That being said... Anyway, the conclusion is they now have three or four chickens in their back garden, and they're all characters and burglars of dog food from underneath Labrador noses and the raider of the kitchen fridge, um, which is when she was able to get through the back door at the end. So this is a very charming story about a bucolic place where chickens can roam free and raid the fridge. But sometimes fucking fucks eat them because that is just nature. I'm sorry to laugh at your chicken loss, listener. I love you all. Everyone counts as Dog of the Week and Lara Bricker. If people also want to send you their dead outside animals that predators love to be Cat of the Week or... If they just want to send you their robust and alive dog, cats, donkeys, emus, whatever. Or some chicken McNuggets. Of course you can email <laughs> us at crimewriterson at gmail.com or Laura Bricker. If folks want to reach out to you on Twitter, how can they find you? Um, at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you about your uh, hatred of chickens and, um, you know, really just not caring about their deaths. How can they find you on Twitter? 
I'm sort of flabbergasted that I'm somehow catching flack about this. <laughs> <laughs> listen, I was watching silently. Listen, I laughed the loudest of all of us. I'll own it. But Toby Ball, folks just want to reach out to you and say, Toby, you're really handsome. How can they find you on Twitter? They're not going to do that either. But um, at Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, folks want to chat to you and say, hey, way to rep the brand with your crime writers on shirt. How can they find you on Twitter? I'm going to be at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. By the way, both feeds are mostly dogs. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I really do encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Somebody posted this week, I have quit every group and every feed on Facebook except for this one. That is how great our group is. Yeah, we have to kick them out now. Search for Crime Writers On on Facebook and then join the group. I promise it is fantastic. Don't be chicken. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Pay a little bit and you will get more than 200 extra episodes, including the Crime Writers On After Show, Married With Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the incredibly handsome cross-country traveler, Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega. The what? The yoga loft in the bodega. In no, above the bodega, not in the bodega. The yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we write shitty poetry that we also read out loud in pubs. The dolphins. Actually, that's kind of true. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Hey, Toby Ball, no video, Toby Ball. Mr. Ball. Hey, thank you. Why why, why are you calling me Mr. Ball? I don't know. I just love the idea of you being Mr. Ball. I love the idea that you were like a substitute English teacher for a period of time. <laughs> and the kids... I was not a substitute. I was a full-time yes. social studies teacher. But what I like is that the kids had to be like, good morning, Mr. Ball. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.